What a wonderful invitation that song is to the church to come and let us adore the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure how you characterize Christmas, but when I think of the Christmas season, I think of a royal visit. And so as we launch into these five Sundays in December, interrupting our study in Hebrews, we want to bring to you uh, a series uh, entitled the, the Royal Visit. Why a royal visit? Why did Jesus come to be among us? Why did the God of heaven leave the throne room of that place and come to live among us for a while? And um, of course, our world is completely confused about the, the stunning reality of Christmas. I mean, I'm not sure whether you really, you know, we can use those words, a royal visit, but we're talking about the king of kings. The king of the entire universe has made a royal visit to earth. That's what Christmas is about. And it, it ought to engender in us a sense of awe and reverence and to be stunned and, and sobered by the awesomeness of what it really is. And, and we see uh, uh, among us uh, such a ho-hum attitude of, yeah, big deal, you know, that... Uh, and, and it ought to, for sure, with God's people, and it's um, encouraging here at our, at our church and with our congregation, that we make a big deal of this, because it is a big deal that, that the Son of God would come to be among us. And we want to look at what the reasons why He came, and we're going to look at just five of them over these next um, few weeks. But one, of the thing that, one thing that I've noticed that seems to be the same as 2,000 years ago, that, that, that our world is filled with people who are who are rebels to that reality, who reject that reality, who object to that reality, object to that name, Jesus Christ. When we think about 2,000 years ago when the courtroom was assembled and, and they brought their case against Jesus and said, we will not have that name among us, crucify him, we don't want anything to do with Jesus. And I thought, how similar it is 2,000 years later when the highest court of Canada is making a judgment call, a decision on, on that name, Jesus Christ, whether or not we will have that name among us or whether by law we will outlaw that name from, from this place. It's, it's, a, it's quite starkly amazing that uh, we still find ourselves 2,000 years later. No difference. The hearts of human, humans are hard. And unless God does something incredibly amazing to turn our hard hearts into hearts of flesh... We will reject the name of Jesus Christ every time. And our default is to find happiness in sinfulness instead of our hope in God. So today we want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And in our first of our series, we want to um, uh, notice that Jesus came to bring hope in God. Now you are used to me at Christmas time talking to you about Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1 or... Maybe John chapter 1, but after 16 years among you, I've pretty much done those chapters over and over again. And we, we never grow weary of hearing the Christmas story, but perhaps First Peter is not exactly where you think you'd go for a Christmas message. But in fact, the story of Christmas is all over the Bible, and that shouldn't surprise us. I know it doesn't. It doesn't surprise us, but, but we want to look at First uh, Peter and, and answer this question, what is this royal visit? Why the royal visit? 
And uh, we're answering the question by simply saying Jesus came to bring hope. And in particular, to bring hope in God. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. And uh, I wonder if you'd bow your heads with me as we pray together. Father, we want to peer into your word now and we need hope. In this hopeless world we live in, we need to know about hope. And we need to embrace hope, oh God. And even as your children, there are so many attacks, so much trouble, so many frustrations, so many struggles, so many tragedies, so many deep sorrows in our life, Lord, so many questions. I pray this morning as we ponder the great work of Christ, I pray, O oh God, that you would give us a, a fresh infusion of hope in God. When we understand that Jesus came to bring us hope, then it's possible for us to live with this hope. It's expected of us. We can have this hope. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would bring your word alive in our lives, that you would, if there are any stony places in our heart today, that you would soften them so we would respond to you and welcome you and welcome your truth, O oh God. Because your truth is freeing, and we need to be set free from the trials and the, tr and the tribulations, the, the pain and the struggles around us, oh God. We need to be free that we might rejoice in you this season of time. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So why did the Son of God take on the form of a servant? And come to earth to be among us for about 33 years. Something around that neighborhood. So in this five-part series, we want to look at the reasons for the season. And I want to draw your attention, if your Bibles are open, in 1 Peter chapter 1 to verse 10. There's a, an eye-opening and a heart-awakening phrase that leads that verse, verse 10. Concerning this salvation... That's what it's about. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And of course, included in that whole idea is the life and work of Christ among us, the incarnation the life, the sufferings, and the glories as he was resurrected from the dead. And so you have this, this great truth laid out for us here. This, as we work our way through this chapter, I just want to select a few phrases to get us warmed up. And then I want to zero in on two verses this morning, verses 20 and 21. But you'll notice that this grace, the magnitude of this grace is, is brought to our attention uh, of what Christ has done for us and what this all means. And then in verse 3, you see this great mercy and his great mercy. He's given us new birth into living hope at an unthinkable expense, verse 19. Not with the uh, blood of animals, but with the precious blood of Christ the Lamb without blemish or defect. This unthinkable 
expense to bring us what? Verse 3, hope, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And really, as we get to the verse 21, hope specifically in God. And why in God? Because only He is holy, completely consistent, and the fair judge, and the only awarder of salvation. Notice what it says in verse 15. Just as He who called you is holy, and He is completely consistently holy, and a fair judge, verse 17, since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, and the only awarder of salvation. So when it comes to the question of who should we have hope in, the answer, Peter says, is that you would have hope in God. So you could be redeemed, verse 18, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, so that if you are in Christ, you will be judged righteous, and if you will be judged righteous, you will be saved. That's the essence and the gospel of, of Christmas. That's what we are hoping in. That's what we are hoping for. But we are not to use this grace, which is the undeserved favor of God. We are never to use this grace as an excuse to be sloppy or to be sinful, to bring shame and dishonor to Jesus Christ. Not ever. In fact, the key application for this whole section of the scriptures is found in verse 17. That we might live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear of God. When we have an awareness of the magnitude of the royal visit and why the Son of God left the splendor of heaven to come and live among us, to be rejected, to be rebelled against, to be resisted, to be persecuted, to be slaughtered on a cross. It's that we might recognize that we are called to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear of God. The marvel of God's justice is both sobering and stunning. And that's how the first salvo that Peter, the disciple, uh, launches his letters that um, making sure we understand that this matter of the royal visit and the greatness of Christ and the grace of God and the hope that we can have in God is something that even angels, verse 12, long to look into. Now, think about this. Angels who were, are, and are eternal beings that are always in the presence of Almighty God, that were eyewitnesses to all of the activities that we have laid out for us here in the Scriptures, that were at the Incarnation, they were at the birth of Christ, they were at the first Christmas, they witnessed the life of Christ and the miracles of Christ, they witnessed Calvary, they witnessed the ascension of Christ, to, to uh, heaven. They saw all that God had done and they still in looking at this long to gaze at it and study it and they marvel at it and they think it's awesome. And here we are 
the people who benefit from the salvation of the Lord at times taking it as oh ho hum big deal what's the big what's the use and what you know what's the big deal what's what's the big pizzazz here around what's the big deal on this weekend you know I, I'm not sure I'm all that jazzed up about God I, I don't want to get too too fanatical about this stuff those powerful eternal beings that know this stuff way better than us, still long to look into these things. That sets, a, that sets a pace for us, don't you think? Consider concerning your salvation, this salvation. I, I think perhaps it's because we are so used to a such a permissiveness in our society that, you know, when, when, when we think about the fact that the God of heaven, the living God, the King of kings, made a visit, it ought to arrest our attention. It, it, we ought to long to look at this and look carefully at it and think about the implications for our lives. But we live in this permissive age. We live in this age where nice tries are fine. We live in this age where participation awards are given out, willy-nilly. I don't like participation awards. You know that. You either win or you lose. And if you lose, you don't get an award. That's, that's, that's the way it works. So we, we have this, this malaise that we live in. We don't get too excited about anything. We don't have to put too much passion behind anything because I'm getting an award anyway just for showing up. You don't get an award just for showing up in Christianity. If there's anything that Peter launches here, it is, you better put your whole heart into this because the living God has put his whole heart into you. And so it ought to change your life dramatically. I'll never forget the day, and this is an illustration I've used before, but it bears repeating because you'll have forgotten about it anyway. And, and, and it works so nicely. But uh, before I was a pastor, you know, I used to work in... Um, in uh, property management and leasing, commercial leasing for a, a trust company. And, and one day, uh, a call came into the office, the regional office I worked at, from a man named R.J. Hare. Now, that won't mean anything to you, but it meant a lot to me. You see, uh, back in those days, I had a boss, and he had a boss, and over that boss was a vice president, and over that vice president was a president, and then there was R.J. Hare. You know what I'm talking about? From my pay grade to his pay grade, there was five people between. And, and the buzz in the office, because I wasn't there when the call came, and the buzz in the office was, the chairman of the trust company wants to talk to you, Rick. R.J. Hare wants to talk to K.R. Baker. <laughs> this was as close as, as a royal visit in our company as you could get. And so I got out my tape measure, and I looked for the biggest office, in the, in, biggest office space in the office, and decided to measure, start measuring for my new office. Because, obviously, so I called him. Oh, Mr. Hare, Rick Baker here. Ah, yes, Rick. And I was just waiting to hear, so what's my promotion? But I, I was containing myself. 
the call went completely opposite to how I was anticipating. It was a royal visit for sure, and it was serious for sure, but it was, do you like your job, Rick? Would you like to keep your job, Rick? Well, you're losing money for the company, Rick. And here are the changes you better make. You better start to take your job seriously or you won't have a job. That call, that royal call, was to save me. The royal visit from the king of kings is to save us. We have a problem. And Jesus has come to let us know how that can be changed. So angels long to look at this. We better take seriously what Christ has to say to us. In case your hope is taking a hit these days and it's sagging and you are jeopardizing your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we need you to take another look at this text because what you do with Jesus in this lifetime sets you up, sets up your relationship with him now and forevermore or non-relationship with him, whichever it is. Whether or not this matters to you this morning tells you everything about where your heart is at with the Lord. If this isn't stirring you right from the get-go, then, then perhaps you need to, to return to your own heart and ask the question, do I really understand the nature of what Christ has done and what he's willing to do in my life? Because in case you're considering transferring your hope in God to hope in sinful choices, I want you to think again this morning. I want you to really think again. Don't, whatever you do, trade your hope in God for hope in a death sentence that sin will bring. So I want to give you six reasons from these two verses, verses 20 and 21 this morning, why you can have and why Jesus brings hope in God. He, Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. We ask the question, why did Jesus come to earth? Peter answers the question right here. Two verses, six reasons Christmas brings hope in God. And the first is this. Notice that phrase, he was chosen before the creation. He, Jesus, was chosen before the creation. Christmas was completely pre-planned and not interpreted after the fact. When God created, I, I, ha I get this question regularly, and I'm sure you do as well. One of the questions that seems to, to uh, interfere with people's uh, processing the whole idea of God and how he made the world and, and, and why he is good and why I should come to him and serve him and all of that, one of the questions that I'm regularly asked is if God knew that human beings would be so evil and wicked and rebellious, 
Why in the world did he make the world the way it is? Why did he even make people? Have you ever been asked that question? Have you ever wondered about that question? I've been asked that question so regularly, and the answer is given here that in fact, the stunning reality, the, the sobering truth, is God knew exactly what he was doing and knew exactly who he was creating and knew exactly that we would rebel against him. So much so that Peter says here, even before God made you, knowing full well what you would do, that you would turn your back on him, Christ was chosen for the assignment to go and redeem you from your sin. So much did God love us. When we think of John 3.16, we ought to think of it in a new way. Even before God made everything, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The living God was so, so intent on rescuing us from our hope in sinfulness which would lead to our death that he assigned the second person of the Godhead to go and die for us. Christmas was not interpreted after the fact. Christmas was a pre-planned event by the living God himself at creation, before creation. He was chosen, Jesus. So if you are weighing your sin options for happiness and hope, would you please, please think again at what the living God was willing to do so that you would not do that? Willing to have the Son of God die to rescue you from that. The cross was not an accident. Christmas was not an accident. The cross of Christ was not some inept ancient Near East court ruling. God didn't just know in advance what would happen and then come up with some sort of plan B. God orchestrated the incarnation. God orchestrated Calvary and engineered it so it would happen exactly the way it did. He planned it and brought it to pass. So Christmas and the cross were pre-planned and put into place as part of the purposes of creation itself to rescue you from hope and sin so that you could have hope in God. That's the contrast of this text. Over and over again, Peter talks about purifying yourself, living a holy life. What ought we to do in light of what Christ has done? The contrast of, of hope in sin versus hope in God. Because our natural bent 
outside of Jesus Christ's intervention in our life is to find hope and happiness in sinful choices. It is. That's the story of humanity. That's the struggle of our own lives. We face the decision, the choice. Do I want to go this way because I, this choice, it feels like this choice might make me more happy. That, that was the thing that Eve did. It seems like this choice to disobey God and eat this forbidden fruit will make me more happy than what God has offered to me. And God has set up salvation for us so that we will have the power within us through Christ's dwelling work in our life to reject hope in sin in favor of hope in God alone for our happiness. That's what this call is all about. I see another phrase here. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times. Christmas made the invisible visible. Now the ancients, prior to incarnation, had never seen God. In fact, throughout, all, throughout the scriptures, that concept is continually brought to our awareness. The invisible God. The God who is invisible. And the ancients had not seen God. And so we have they, they like us, by faith, were certain of what they did not see. But there was a time and a place and a set of people for which the invisible God made himself visible and came and dwelt among us. In fact, a few pages over in your Bible to 1 John, if you go towards the end, you'll find 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and following, that which was from the beginning, disciple John is writing, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The disciples, the apostles, the time, that season, the inauguration of the last days, they were granted this incredible privilege of having the invisible God become visible. John makes a big deal of that in his, his gospel at the very first chapter. In John chapter 1, verse 1, verse 14, verse 18, the word was God and tabernacle dwelt among us or tabernacled among us he came and hung out among us so that he the one and only the begotten of God has fully explained God to us that's why Jesus could look at Philip who was struggling himself at the time and say Philip if you have seen me you have seen the father the invisible was made visible at the incarnation, at Christmas. God's plan included a flesh and blood appearance so that the invisible may be seen by a certain generation. What is called these last days. But the word is used, used here is revealed. The Son of God didn't begin at Christmas. He was simply revealed at Christmas. 
the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, exist from eternity past. There is no beginning and no ending. The Son of God was revealed at Christmas. Simeon took him in his hands and said, Behold, I have now seen the salvation of our God. I may depart now in peace. That's what the incarnation did for him. So to embrace the historic Christmas is to hope in God. Why? Because God has demonstrated to us that he comes good on his promises. The ancients were promised the coming of Messiah. And God came good on his promise. And he will, pro he will come good on his promise that Christ will come again. He keeps his promises. We are now certain of what we do not see. Because the invisible has been made visible. Praise God. Thirdly. But was revealed in these last times for your sake. Christmas is incredibly personal. I hope you take, the full, take full advantage to get the full force of what this really means. Before creation, the living God who loved us so much that he planned our redemption, knew you and me by name. This incarnation, this concerning this salvation, this was not for humanity in general as much as it was for you specifically. You me, God did this for us. How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us that he might cause this to happen. What generations before could only hope could happen. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 and 40, but died not having seen it. We have now encountered and seen these promises come to pass for us. And we have been placed in his family. We have been appointed to adoption in his family. Do you realize what Christmas and Christ's life and, and, and Calvary means? That, that, that on that special day in your life, you received a, a notice from God that you tore open the envelope and you ripped out the letter and the letter said you you have been chosen, you, Rick, Susan, Mary, whatever name, you have been chosen to be adopted into the family of God. Welcome to my family. That's called salvation. I mean, seriously, angels love to, and long to look at these things and realize what they mean. Placed in his family on our way to seeing him. We now have received notice that we belong to the living God and that we are on our way to an eternal relationship with him. We are on our way to that day of meeting our wonderful Savior face to face and he's getting us ready every day for that day. He's dressing us up so that he can take us out. 
those of you who've raised children to the place where they start dating, or maybe you remember it in your own life when there was that special phone call that came. And of course, the ladies, you, you get this phone call, you know, and it's a guy, Prince Charming, who you've been waiting your whole life to make that phone call. And he makes that call and he says, hey, how would you like to go out to Tim Hortons? And of course, behind the scenes of all of this kind of thing, like this is not just an invitation to Tim Hortons. This could be an invitation to change your whole life. This could be an invitation to change you and bring you into his family. So what do you do? You put on more than your Tim Hortons attire. You, you get fancied up, man. You get all dressed up. You get ready. You know, you cleaned up real good. And you go out on that because you're getting ready for Prince Charming. This, Peter says, why would we be holy? Why? He writes here, you know, therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. Give all passion to this. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that, that you used to live in ignorance. But be holy because God is holy. And he's going to judge how you live. And, and you've been saved by an expensive cost of Christ's blood. You ought to get dressed up really well in preparation for his coming. That's what this is all about. Everyone who has this hope, 1 John 3, 3 points out, purifies himself just as he is pure. We live differently because of what God has done. We are saved by grace, but we aren't invited to sin by grace. Grace is not a license to sin. It's an obligation to holiness. God takes you, me, and how I live every day and how you live every day seriously. Do you take it seriously? Because he does. I notice a phrase, another phrase here. Through him you believe in God. Fourthly, Christmas brought the way to God. To those people who you know, neighbors, friends, family, who say, I can't come to God. I I'm not able to come to Christ. I, I, I can't, you know, I, I look around at Christians and I'm saying to myself, I can't live that life. They are 100% right. They are telling you the absolute truth. They can't. They can't believe. They can't live like a Christian. They can't even come. They can't even become a Christian. It's not a decision you can make. It's not a decision you can make for anybody. So you can't bring your children to church and have some special thing done, ceremony done for them. And there they are in the family of God. No. Through Jesus, you believe in God. We need or needed, if we know him, Jesus, in order to believe in God. The question is, like, can't I believe in God without Jesus? The answer is, no. Now, some of you might have been hesitant to answer that question. You might have said, wait a second. What do you mean by believe? That's an important question. Because Satan believes in God, doesn't he? The demons believe in God. What's the difference? 
We're not talking about an intellectual acceptance of the reality, the historic reality or the, the actual reality of God. We are talking about trusting in God, believing in God, giving over our lives to God, believing that Christ died for us and that we have to turn to him for forgiveness of sins. That kind of belief can only come from Jesus Christ. The only way a person's life can be totally changed and transformed and enabled to live the Christian life of holiness, that kind of belief, is through Jesus. You can't come to God and live that life without Jesus. Why? Because what died in the Garden of Eden can only be brought to life by Jesus Christ. We died spiritually to any interest, to any enablement, to any power, to anything but rebellion toward God. We died to any sensitivity spiritually to God. And unless Jesus Christ brings to life taking your cold, stony heart that prefers to find happiness in sin, unless, unless Christ takes that stony heart and turns it to flesh, you cannot, you will not come to Christ. But praise God, Christmas has made the way to God available. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said, my sheep hear my voice. They listen to me and they follow me. If you aren't following Christ or if you can't follow Christ, it's because you aren't a child of God. The point of God's work of salvation is to call people for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ. That's how he begins his letter. Peter says here, uh, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pont Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ. This is why we've been rescued, to follow him, and we are enabled to. Fifthly, pretty important, who raised him from the dead? Christmas was so Jesus could defeat death. Why should I have hope in God? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, the Father accepted Jesus' cross work on our behalf by raising him to life. Uh, when Jesus was playing mind games with the Sadducees one day, uh, way back in Luke chapter 20, verse 36, he was identifying those who belonged to him. He was classifying and characterizing us. And here's what he said, I quote Jesus, those who can no longer die because they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Isn't that amazing? We are identified not just, we don't just gaze at the truth about what happened to Jesus. 
that Jesus, in fact, was raised from the dead. But we are now called, identified as children of the resurrection. It is our family description. That's who we are. We are people who can no longer die. We are those who will be raised to life. Why? Because Christ has been raised for us. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So if there is eternal life, then the wages of sin must have been paid for. And if death has been defeated, it's because Jesus Christ paid our wages. The wages of death have been paid for us so that now we have eternal life through Christ Jesus. So now when sin calls you, it is tempting you to indulge in certain joys. It is a call to death. The wages of sin is death. When you are given the choice to serve God, to choose Christ, to choose Christ's way, or to choose the way of sin, one is a call to abundant life. The other is a call to death. Don't answer that call. Don't answer that call. When sin calls, we tend to throw all sense away. But in our normal lives, when we are warned about death or danger or getting hurt, we are like over-the-top safety conscious. I can't believe in the transition of the decades I've lived in it, how much, pretty soon people are going to be coming to church wearing elbow pads and shoulder pads and shin pads for fear we might bump into somebody and hurt our little fragile bodies. It's, it's like unbelievable how safety conscious we become. And there's a CSA sticker on everything or you can't, you can't get your hands on it. I'm not much for those stickers. I, I find, that I, I, find I, I prefer to live life a little more risky than, than the safety standards of the, 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 the most nervous soccer mom out there. You know, I, it's just not the life I want to live. But, you know, Jordan and I were stringing Christmas lights this year. And I did find out there is a reason why certain things are labeled the way they are. <laughs> we decided to string the whole house, bottom and top, in one long strand and in one plug because you know plugs there's an economy of plugs there are not many of them outside every time we plugged that sucker in it would blow we changed four fuses because we're slow to learn and determined this thing is going to work on one strand. And then I decided to read the instructions. Because you know guys. We always read the instructions last. So we're reading the instructions. It says. Do not string beyond seven. We had 17. <laughs> I found out that. They actually meant what they said. So we decided well. There's 17, that doesn't divide into 7 evenly, and we're definitely not using 3 plugs. So we'll just start adding until it doesn't blow. So we have 8 on one, and 9 on another. And we're not sure how far it could go, but so far, so good. But in our lives, we are so safety conscious, so concerned. And we give very little thought to what about when we die? 
What about after? What about then? Christmas has answered that question. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And God intends to raise us with him as well. So should you be killed? Or should you die of a disease? Or should you die of old age? You'll be raised to life forever. That's the meaning of Christmas. And there's a final one. And it says this, and glorified him, glorified Jesus. Christmas promises that your future, no matter how rough it is right now, will be very, very glorious. Isn't that good news? That's the promise. That God glorified Jesus tells us that all the pain and all the suffering and all the struggle and all the injustice and all the persecution and all the shame that we've had to endure for giving uh, our lives to the Lord and saying no to sin will someday be rewarded with great glory, which is always favorable in the Word of God. Our pioneer has modeled this for us, the way our forever priest. Sin promises death. Being sure of what we hope for promises glory. That's the reality here. So as we close our time together this morning, uh, can I just, as, as you gaze at your options in life, and there really are two, to choose sin or to choose God. That's the two options. I, I want to deliver for a few moments just some Advent advice to all of us. Because Christmas was the beginning of the end, so that the end could just be the beginning. That's why it talks here about in these last days, these last times, Jesus was revealed to us. We are on the edge of the end. I think we all sense that. We recognize that. We're on the edge of the end. And if, if we aren't, maybe it's just because I'm getting older. I'm certainly myself on the edge of the end. So I'm more conscious than ever of the need to live my life as a stranger here. That I might live in reverent fear and awe of God. That my heart might become more and more prepared for that day when Christ will come for me. And, and I don't want to live a sloppy life. I, I don't want to choose and think that sin will make me happy when I know that hope in God alone makes me happy. I, I've already lived long enough to know that. And as obedient children, it's important for us from this text to not conform to the evil desires we had when we were ignorant of the truth. We know better. We know that living a pure life before Christ by His strength is the best way to go, is the most rewarding way to live. Everything is set. The table is totally set. See that your faith, verse 21, and your hope are fully in God and not sin. Throw everything you have into this. Be all in. Be passionate about this truth. I don't see a middle ground in human life at all. When I look at the scriptures, you are either all in to sinfulness or you are either all in to Christ life. 
There's not a kind of a middle murky ground where, well, you know what, I don't take my Christianity too serious. I don't want to get too fanatical about it. I don't mind showing up at church once in a while, but, but to be honest with you, I'm sort of dabbling and, and tasting and sampling of Jesus, and it, it's kind of something that works for me. No, that doesn't work for you at all. That won't work at all. Christ is all in for us. Before even creation, he marked out your name for salvation and for sanctification and for glorification. All in. And he calls us as we think about Christmas and what it really means. The reason for the season is that we would be passionately all in for Jesus Christ. That our hope would be in God alone that we think of happiness. Our hope for happiness would be in God and His ways alone. That's the message of Peter who hung out with Jesus. He saw Him. He heard Him. He touched Him. And Jesus touched Peter's life. And it was never, ever the same again. And Peter was all in and tells those of us who are on the other side of the cross, who are living certain of what we cannot see. Live your life as a stranger here in reverent, awesome fear of God. Put your hope in him. He will not disappoint. Oh God, would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Father, we stand together in the presence of Almighty God, in the witness of the angels who long to look into these things, who were here among us this morning, Rejoicing, praising and worshiping Christ for all that he's done for rebellious people like us. So Lord, would we live our lives with passion? May we live the rest of this day with passion. May this afternoon, our presentation here be passionate, oh God. Because there are people who are going to come here and they need to see passion. They need to see people all in for Christ. They need to hunger and thirst and want to taste and see that the Lord is good. And tonight, oh God, and every day of our lives, I pray because and in the name of our strong Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Amen.